I used to be a drunk, but today, and just for today, through the grace of God, I am a slowly recovering alcoholic, and my name is Peter. Hi, family. I am just delighted to be here with you in a willing way tonight. We got in here last night, Dawn and me, and uh, since that time we have been inspired. We have been treated with great hospitality. I've had the opportunity to speak with many of you, to hear some of your stories. I've had an opportunity to learn something about Willing Way, how it came into being, and the marvelous job it has done in terms of giving men and women new beginnings. And we have had the opportunity to renew acquaintanceships with a number of people here that we have met up and down the road, such people as our old friends the Tapers, Bob and Ruth, who keep following us around the country, and Herb and Betty Cody. Betty and, and uh, Dawn and I have had some experiences on little airplanes bouncing around the Midwest, and others here that we have met in other places we have shared, and most important, I've had an opportunity to share with a number of individuals who are initiating that process that leads to recovery. You know, you cannot have a homecoming unless a family is involved. And we are a family. Even those of you that I've never seen before. If you're in this room tonight, it indicates that we are members of a family. We're members of a family because we have shared in different ways, but all to the same result. A certain amount of pain, a certain amount of degradation, a certain amount of shame, in some cases a certain amount of guilt, a certain amount of self-loathing. These are qualities that make us a family. But most important, most important is the fact that by our presence here tonight, we are families in recovery. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news that we're sitting here tonight in recovery? I said jokingly to uh, Bob tonight to get the three-hour tape out. I said it jokingly, but, uh, you know, I get so full sometimes when I take the podium because the flood of memories that overwhelms me uh, sometimes becomes unbearable. <clears throat> I have been in the state of Georgia a number of times over recent years. Usually I've been to Atlanta on business trips, but <clears throat> many years ago, I was a young soldier stationed at Fort Benning for three years, and during those years, some of the most destructive uh, drinking in my entire career took place. And this was during the years when Phoenix City was really at its height. And I assure you, I assure you that in the midst of all that sordidness and all that, all that confusion and all that pain and agony, yours truly was deeply involved, deeply involved. And I'll get back to that a little further down the line. I'm not going to tell you my entire, my entire story, but what I want to do tonight is, this is a hope, I hope I can just sort of give you a few vignettes in terms of qualifying so that you'll know that I have a right to be up here. And then I hope I can take a few minutes to talk about recovery which is paramount in my mind. Uh, it doesn't always work that way because sometimes I get started down a track and it's very hard to, to, to get back on. So I hope I can do that. Well, to begin with, I was born in Detroit 66 years ago and my father was a Methodist minister. He was also a, a closet alcoholic. And by that I mean he, uh, uh, my father was uh, like Don's father. And incidentally, the reason Don and I 
met each other. Her father and my father started out in the ministry together. In fact, they were ordained at the same time. That's how our families knew each other, and that led to us getting uh, hooked up. Anyhow, my father was a closet alcoholic because at least six days of the week, he was a very proper and dignified Reverend Crawford. Uh, My father was a very handsome, uh, impressive-looking man, and he was always well-tailored. And uh, this was during the Depression. The rest of the family was in rags, but my father was always looking looking quite quite impressive. And uh, I can remember on Sunday nights in particular, uh, they'd have church services, and after the service, uh, uh, my parents would come home. Interestingly, uh, there was such a thing once as Sunday night church services before Ed Sullivan destroyed them. And uh, uh, I remember that our, our house was right next to the church, and we'd be listening to the radio, and then all of a sudden I would hear the organ at the church next door began to play, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. And that meant the church service was breaking up. And I began to tremble because I knew that in a very short order, my father would come home and take off his robe, and his work, his work week having ended, he'd begin to drink. And once he began to drink, all hell would break loose. And because I was the oldest of the four kids, I bore the brunt of his, of his rage. And he would just knock me around like I was a, a punching bag. I was his punching bag. And so I, it was a very brutal kind of uh, childhood. Uh, my father would drink all day uh, uh, Monday, and then he'd, he'd get himself together. And on Tuesday morning, he would go back out, the very dignified Reverend Crawford. And uh, meanwhile, the, the whole house was in, was in turmoil. My mother was a very sick lady emotionally. And uh, there was a lot of talk about heaven in my house. Always a lot of talk about heaven. But there was no love. It was a very loveless household. And I don't remember my parents ever embracing me or showing any affection uh, to me. It was all uh, just a very rigid, cold environment. And uh, I was a very sensitive kid. What else? And uh, uh, I I was emotionally starved. Uh, I retreated into myself. I was a very good scholar a very good student at school, and so I lost myself in my school books. And uh, I'd come home with my report cards, and there'd be mostly A's and maybe a B, and I never got any recognition for the A's, but I got a lot of uh, flack about the B. Uh, never any encouragement. Uh, uh, it was very difficult, and I, I became, uh, uh, an, uh, I became uh, a people pleaser. As a, as a way of surviving. And I was always, I'd do anything to get your, your uh, approval. Matter of fact, I, I went into the terminal stages of people pleasing. That's known as approval sucking. And I became, <laughs> and I became an approval sucker of the first order. And uh, uh, as things went on in, in my childhood, uh, uh, I, was, I was born in 1927 and grew up during the 30s. Uh, this was a very difficult time. Uh, the Depression was going on, and there wasn't always a lot to eat. Uh, the racism in this country at that time was uh, uh, at, its, at its peak. And as a little black child growing up uh, with no uh, role models available uh, and being told on every front that I was worthless and uh, uh, not worthy of respect, uh, all these things together combined to be devastating to my self-esteem. And so I, I uh, buried myself in books. And I began to use books as a form of escape. And as I read these books, I used to identify with the heroes of the books. And I would just get away from this, from this cold uh, uh, environment that I was in through these books. And whatever book I was reading about, uh, I became I became identified with one of my favorite books was uh, Robinson Crusoe, and of course I was Robinson Crusoe, and I and I loved the idea of being off on this island away from all the the cruelty and coldness, and just me and my loyal man Friday, and that was one of my fantasies, and I grew up that way, and so uh, as I grew up uh, in this environment, 
Uh, incidentally, my father, uh, even though I do not believe that most of the members of the churches he pastored knew he was an alcoholic, uh, he did have certain personality characteristics that made the members of the church every year go to the bishop and ask that he be moved. And, uh, the, the, and so we moved frequently. Every year we moved. And I grew up all over Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Kentucky. And every year we moved. And every year we moved during the school year, which meant I had to start over in a new school. And we were always ragged. Back in those days, if you were poor, you looked poor. Now, interestingly, to, by t today, you can't tell who's poor. Everybody's got jeans on. Everybody's got a T-shirt on. You don't know who's poor. When I was a kid, if you were poor, you looked poor. <laughs> you, you had patches on your clothes, and, and uh, blue jeans meant that you, uh, that you couldn't afford regular clothes, and uh, it was pretty rough. And, of course, I was very sensitive. Uh, and, of course, uh, every new school I went to I had to fight my way in, and I was a poor fighter, and I was not a good athlete. When they chose up sides to play ball, nobody wanted me on their team, and uh, I was just miserable, so I became very shy and tongue-tied and uh, withdrawn. I was always the kid on the outside of the crowd looking in, always on the outside of the crowd looking in. And I tell you this, these things for a very specific reason. When I uh, got to be about uh, 13, my father's drinking became uh, uh, more difficult, and then he, the beatings became worse, and I be began to run away from home. When I was 13, I ran away from home and with the intent of, of, of uh, hoboing to California. In those days, California was glamour. It was Mecca. If you could just get to California, the golden state, I didn't make it to California, but I uh, got away from home. And uh, I came back eventually, and then I uh, ran away from home again after a beating. And this time I made it to Chicago when I was 14. And I ended up on State Street, that great street. And uh, as a 14-year-old, I was the manager of a flop house called the Ford Hotel. And the Ford Hotel was a place where men lived and they had a big sign up beds 30 cents a night beds with springs 35 cents a night <laughs> and the men who came to the uh, lived at the Ford Hotel uh, made their living by pushing push carts up and down alleys in Chicago collecting rags and, and metal and bottles which they take to the junkyard to raise that 35 cents plus 50 cents the 50 cents was used to buy a vile concoction they sold in Chicago in those days called Yaki Dock. Yaki Dock was a form of urban stump juice. And these guys would, would uh, raise their price of their bed, and they'd get this bottle of stump juice, and they would pass out. Just, and they used to be stacked up like cordwood. And I remember looking at these men in the lobby of the Ford Hotel stacked up like cordwood, and uh, they had lost control of their, of, their, of their bowels and bladders, and it was an awful mess. And I remember looking at these men and saying to myself, I will never, I will never, ever be like these men. But you know what? In due course, in due course, I became like those men. And so, in 1942, World War II was at its, was, was at its peak, and... Uh, uh, I was in high school. I was, because I was such a good student, I was ahead of myself. And uh, uh, I graduated from high school in 1942. Everyone else in my class was 17 and 18, and they were getting drafted or they were volunteering for service in World War II. And uh, I uh, uh, thought I was as smart as they were, and certainly I was as big as they were, so I volunteered for the Navy. A, a friend of mine had come home from Great Lakes in this absolutely gorgeous sailor suit. I thought that was the most gorgeous outfit I had ever seen in my life. And so I went down to the Navy recruiting station, told them that I was 17, which was the minimum age for getting in the Navy, and they weren't checking birth certificates very carefully. And away I went to Great Lakes. And I served in the Navy for three and a half years during World War II, during which time I was aboard two different ships that were torpedoed in the Pacific. Interestingly, I was not at all frightened by those experiences. 
uh, floating around in the Pacific, uh, you know, burning oil and metal and, and depth charges going off, and I'm floating around out there, uh, sort of a spectator. And I now understand that the reason that I didn't feel any great fear was that my sense of worth was so low that it didn't really make any difference. And many years later, when I became the parent of a son, and when my son became old enough to be drafted, I had a delayed reaction. I was overwhelmed with fear and the shakes because I, as, as a father of a son I love very much, I could, I could envision him being in the same circumstances that I had been many years earlier, and I was overcome with fear. Interesting. I made it through the war all right and came home to Detroit uh, to live with my mother. I was uh, 18 years old and had been through all that, through the war and so forth. And immediately I did three things in short order. I enrolled in Wayne State University in Detroit under the GI Bill. Didn't last very long because it was an urban university surrounded by bars. And it was difficult getting past these bars to get to the classroom. And so in a very short time, I dropped out of college. Then I got a job in the automobile plant, and I was putting Chryslers together, putting quarter panels on Chryslers. And uh, uh, because I had a lot of mouth, uh, they made me the shop steward for the union, United Auto Workers. And uh, in those days, they didn't deduct the union dues from the paychecks the way they do now. In those days, they gave the union dues to the shop steward, me. It was my job to deliver the union dues to the union hall. And uh, somehow I would uh, get the union dues mixed up with my own money. And when I started drinking, you know, well, in those days you also cast your paycheck at the bar. If you bought a, a double shot and a shell of beer, they cast your paycheck for you. And I'd sit in the bar until my paycheck was gone, and then the union dues would get mixed up in this. And uh, so the result was when I got back to work, I didn't have any receipts for these guys. And uh, these guys uh, didn't play. Let me tell you this. I lied to them several times about their, their receipts. And uh, finally, they let it be known to me that they were uh, vastly annoyed uh, with me. And, and the, way they did, the way they let you know they were annoyed, they take your arm or your leg and put it across a curb and jump on it. That lets you know that they were annoyed. So uh, I decided it would be prudent not to go back to work. Uh, and about that same time, uh, uh, I came home uh, one afternoon to my mother's house, and she was entertaining a bunch of church ladies. And they were all out there on this summer day, you know, in their nice flowered summer dresses, drinking lemonade and whatever church ladies do on Sunday afternoon. And uh, they used to call these things lawn fates. I don't know if you're familiar with that. But they're, it's all very proper and very wholesome. And uh, here I came lurching in, uh, drunk, and uh, they pretended they didn't see me. And I went in the house and something told me to urinate out of the window. <laughs> and uh, of course, this attracted attention. And uh, my mother had, had no sense of humor whatsoever. <laughs> and so she invited me to leave. And uh, so in short order, I'm, uh, I'm 20 years old. I'm 20 years old. I've been a failure at getting a higher education. Uh, I uh, can't go back to work in an automobile plant. I, uh, my mother kicked me out, and I uh, did the only thing that an alcoholic knows to do in a situation like that. I went out and got drunk. And when I came to myself, I was sitting alongside a railroad track in a switching yard, watching the engines go back and forth, trying to get up enough nerve or courage to jump in front of a freight train and end it all. And I was only 20 years old. And I was in such despair, in such intense pain. And so I decided uh, that sitting alongside the railroad track that I couldn't get up enough nerve to kill myself, maybe I should go back in the Navy. And I forgot the experiences I'd had of being aboard ships, being torpedoed and all the other wartime uh, pain, and instead I remembered the good times, such as they were. You know, the, the girl in every port, the port in every girl, 
And uh, so I went down to the Navy recruiting station and, uh, and said, I want to go back in the Navy. And the Navy said, well, listen, we'll be glad to take you back, but because in the post-war period the Navy has shrunk in size, it'll take some time to find a spot for you. Uh, and I said, how long? And they said, 30 days. Well, folks, I could not wait 30 days because these union members were actively looking for me. So on the way out, uh, I struck up a conversation with an Army recruiter. The Army recruiter said, listen, if you join the Army, we'll give you the equivalent rank. I've been a second-class gunner's mate in the Navy, and they said, you can come in the Army as a staff sergeant, and what's more, we'll have you on a train to Fort Dix, New Jersey tonight. I played hard to get for at least 30 seconds or so. And uh, the next thing you know, I'm on the way to the Army. And I signed up for two years, and the two years stretched into nearly 10. And during the course of those years in the Army, my drinking accelerated at an incredible rate. And the pain, the pain and confusion, and the lack of, of, of contact with reality, the detachment from reality just increased. And I, I was at places, uh, I was either at a Southern Army camp or I was overseas, one or the other. And uh, just to give you a couple of vignettes uh, to sort of summarize my experience, uh, this scene I'm about to describe must have happened a dozen times. And in this composite scene, uh, in, my, in, my, in my memory, it's probably Easter Sunday. And I'm in a Southern Army camp town and it's Easter Sunday morning. It's a beautiful Sunday morning. And here comes a, a family down the street on the way to church. They've got their Easter Sunday best on. And they've got their Bibles under their arms. Mom and Pop and a couple of little kids. And they're coming down the street, you know, on Sunday morning. And out of the bushes lurches this drunken soldier in a filthy khaki uniform. Uh, with his pants wet. Uh, I should have mentioned I had this quaint little habit of wetting myself whenever I got drunk. Matter of fact, my nickname was Pissy Pete. But anyhow, <clears throat> so I, I, I come lurching out of these uh, bushes, you know, toward this family, and as we draw closer to each other, they look at me, and I, I see in the, the father's eyes, I, I just see contempt, utter contempt. And in the mother's eyes, I see maybe pity. And in the children's eyes, I see fear. And as, I, as we approach each other, you know, they kind of give me a, a wide berth on the sidewalk as I approach them. And uh, I remember feeling the great pain and, and wanting to say to these people, but you don't understand, I don't really want to be this way. And another vignette uh, that strikes me... Uh, well, this is more than a vignette. This is an, uh, uh, an experience. Uh, I, uh, as I said, I was a people pleaser of the, of the worst order. And I had a, a guy who was a friend of mine in the Army that I greatly admired. This guy's name was John T. Warren, and he was from Montgomery, Alabama. And I admired him because he, was, he had all the qualities that I wished that I had. He, you know, he, was, he, he seemed to be uh, always, uh, always seemed to have an answer and... He was very sophisticated, and he could talk to girls, and uh, he was just, you know, he was, he was sort of a hero to me. I had just, we had just arrived at uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and we were not in the paratroopers. We're just a couple of what they call straight-leg soldiers. And we're sitting in this little bar entertaining a couple of the local girls with, uh, and we had uh, great intentions for the evening. And uh, we're drinking and drinking and drinking, and uh, it's getting near closing time. And the door flew open, and in walked two big, handsome paratroopers. Now, some of you may know that paratroopers' uniforms are gaudier than a regular, a regular soldier. They have these foragares on their shoulders, and they have boots that are shinier, and, and they've got these wings on their breast, and uh, they're, they're very... Uh, uh, stylish-looking guys, and of course, they got extra money for jumping out of airplanes. That was the, the real key to their attraction. 
So when they walked in the bar, these two local bells deserted us. And uh, I was uh, so far gone, it didn't make an awful lot of difference to me. But my friend John T. Warren was outraged. And he said, Peter, if we're going to stay here, we got to join the paratroopers. And I, listen, I have no need to jump out of airplanes, none whatsoever. But because I'm a people pleaser, I say, sure, John. Yeah, let's join the paratroopers. Now, I was, at the time, I was working in personnel. I knew the regulations inside out. I knew that in order to get into paratroopers, you needed to take another physical examination, which was more rigorous than the regular one. And I also knew that if you had flat feet, you were disqualified. And I have flat feet. So I figured I was on pretty safe ground. And besides, by tomorrow morning, John T. Warren will have forgotten this madness. But the next morning, here comes John T. Warren down to the personnel. Where's the applications? We've got to join the paratroopers. I said, oh, my God. But anyhow, we, I figured, uh, you know, I was on safe ground. We filled out the applications, submitted them, and in due course, we had to go to the station hospital for our physical. And uh, I'm quite nonchalant because I know I'm going to flunk the physical. We get in there to see the doctor, and the doctor gets about as close to me as that flag. And he looks at me and he says, you're a fine physical specimen. You passed. And I said, what about my feet? And he says, there's nothing wrong with your feet. So the next thing I know, I'm on the way to Fort Benning, the jump school. <laughs> Folks, this was real trauma. This was real trauma. So I survived the notorious 34-foot jump, and which is the, f the thing, first thing they start you out on. And in due course, I was making my, my jumps. Well, they weren't really jumps. I was assisted out of the airplanes. <laughs> and eventually the day came for the graduation jump. And uh, they assisted me out of the plane as usual. And incidentally, I never, never went up in the airplane unless I was loaded. I was loaded. There was some stuff called white oak whiskey uh, they sold in, in, in Columbus, Georgia. And I had, it was very cheap and very potent, and I was full of white oak. Anyhow, uh, we made this graduation jump, and people were running up to congratulate the, the graduates. And up to congratulate me came my friend John T. Warren, who had flunked the physical. <laughs> it's not easy being a practicing alcoholic. It's really not easy. And, and you know, uh, uh, again and again and again, I had the experience of waking up somewhere, you know, and uh, sick and hungover, my pockets inside out. Again and again, I had the experience of, of getting that first drink of stump juice in the morning and taking that first hit and everything coming up, my body telling me that it's really allergic to alcohol, but instead of stopping, I persisted and took a second hit, and that would come up and maybe the third or fourth hit would stay down. Anybody been there? Yeah. And I continued to drink. Well, I would had this habit of uh, disappearing for days when I, uh, after I got paid on payday. Model soldier most of the month. Model soldier. And I uh, was always getting kicked out of one outfit uh, and assigned to another because nobody wanted a drunk in their outfit. And I get to the new outfit and they'd eye me suspiciously. But I was such an impressive soldier. Most alcoholics are good at the first impression. And I knew how to make a first impression because I'd report for duty in a new organization with my tailor-made uniform on and my military bearing and very crisp. And they'd say, this guy is a soldier. They'd say, this guy is a soldier. And I was very good at my work. And uh, eventually they gained confidence in me because I was really a good soldier very able man. And then payday would come. And I'd come back three or four days later, filthy, my pants wet, and all the rest. And they'd say, now we understand. Now we understand. And I did that, that uh, a long time and got away with it. And I remember that uh, uh, I can't, the, fourth, the first of March is my belly button birthday. And the 1st of March, 1950, uh, was my birthday and was also soldier's payday. And uh, I went downtown and I got enormously drunk. 
I got spectacularly drunk. I got in all kinds of trouble, fist fights and brawls, and the MPs picked me up twice and took me back to camp, and only that I'd go back to town and resume the drunk. But eventually it ended, and I reported into my commanding officer's office, and I could tell that uh, the wheel had run off because he, uh, there was something different in his demeanor. And I could see that he was no longer going to excuse me as he had before. And I remember he said to me, Peter, he said, you know, I think you've got a problem. And he says, I think the problem is that you're an alcoholic. And he said, uh, you know, I think that uh, uh, we need to do something about that. We need to do something about that. He said, uh, I want you to go downtown to Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I read an article about Alcoholics Anonymous that says they cure people like you. Those are his words. They cure people like you. Well, I had heard of AA, incidentally. I told you I was an, a great reader. I had read the 1941 Saturday Evening Post article by Jack Alexander. And uh, I used to sit in the bar and make jokes about belonging to Alcoholics Unanimous. thought that was kind of witty. And uh, uh, I uh, uh, knew that uh, if I didn't go to AA, though, I was going to be in serious trouble. And I had no desire to go to AA whatsoever. But I went into my people-pleasing number, and, oh, sir, I have always wanted to go to AA. Oh, thank you, sir. Oh, thank you for sending me to AA. So in due course... In due course, I uh, uh, arrived at the AA group in Columbus, Georgia. Columbus, Georgia. And this was in March of 1950. And they had seen a lot of black drunks, but interestingly, they had never seen a black alcoholic. 1950. And when I walked into the AA group, they immediately convened the group conscience meeting in the corner. <laughs> and... Uh, they uh, really had a problem. And the interesting thing, they didn't want me there, but what they didn't fully understand was I didn't want to be there either. So anyhow, they had, I could see them back there, and the elder statesman of the group was, was uh, pontificating on what they ought to do. And finally they came to me, and uh, they decided that uh, they couldn't let me in the meeting, but uh, they also couldn't throw me out, they didn't feel. So instead, what they did was they put a chair in the doorway. And so I was halfway in the meeting and halfway out of the meeting. That was a very degrading thing to do to a human being. It took me a long time to, to deal with that. Over the years, though, I've come to understand that uh, what was operational was that they were full of fear. They were full of fear because the color of my skin got in the way of their understanding that I was in trouble that I did have a problem. Anyhow, because I uh, didn't want to go to jail, I came to AA and sat in that chair in the doorway and listened. I wasn't allowed to participate, but I could listen. And the more I listened, the crazier I thought these people were. You know, to begin with, they sat around and they had all these cornball slogans. Easy does it. Don't take the first drink. One day at a time. Think before you drink. Keep coming back. And they kept saying these things over and over and over again. And I said, these people must be, have wet brains. They can't remember anything. And uh, the other thing about them was that they were all old people. Now, I was 23. And these people were at least 40. <laughs> I've noticed 40 is not quite as old as it used to be. But uh, this was an enormous uh, uh, difference, you know, all these old people. And what I figured was they had a great time drinking all their lives. Now they had one foot in the grave. They were trying to shape up so they could go to heaven. But the thing that really got to me was the fact that they would sit there in that meeting. And, uh, well, here's a woman over here named Sally. And uh, she says, uh, my name is Sally and I'm a grateful alcoholic. And I knew for a fact that Sally had a severely retarded child at home. And I knew that her husband used to beat up on her. And I knew that uh, she was having a very hard time making ends meet. 
And yet, here's Sally at the AA meeting talking about she's a grateful alcoholic. Well, now you know there had to be something wrong with her, right? And then here's a guy over here named Fred. And Fred uh, would open up with, my name is Fred and I'm a grateful alcoholic. And I knew for a fact that Fred had eight kids at home. He had no job. And he was about to be evicted from his home. And he's at the AA meeting talking about, I'm a grateful alcoholic. Well, now, you know, this guy can't be wrapped too tight. And I said, these are the craziest people I've ever seen. So I went to AA from, from uh, March 1950 until June 1950. And in June 25th, 1950, the Korean War broke out. And my commanding officer got his orders to go to Korea. And that meant I didn't have to go back to AA anymore. And I resigned. And, uh, of course, later on that same year, I, I ended up in Korea myself and got banged up, uh, partly because of my drinking. I resumed my career as a practicing alcoholic and uh, drank more. After I came back from Korea, I bounced around the States a while. And then I ended up in Germany uh, for a tour of duty. And during these, uh, uh, this tour of duty in Germany, my drinking really accelerated. It accelerated at a tremendous pace, and the pain of living, the intensity, just became unbearable. You know, I was unable to, uh, to open letters because of the, this sense of foreboding I had. Uh, if two people were talking in the corner there, they were talking about me. I couldn't answer the telephone because this sense that there was going to be some terrible news would befall me. Uh, and so I drank more and more and faster and faster, and the pain of living just became unbearable. And it was during that time that uh, I woke up one morning and, uh, and thought, my God, I didn't go to work yesterday. I didn't go to work yesterday. I worked in the headquarters of the 7th Corps in Stuttgart. I said, I didn't get to go to work yesterday. What can I do to, what can I do to, to get out of this? So I lay there a long time trying to think of a lie to tell my commanding officer as to why I hadn't been to work that day before. And finally I got up and I went through my, my routine of preparation, which consisted of getting up, taking a shower with Tide laundry soap. Now why did I take a bath with Tide laundry soap? Well, I was a kind of alcoholic that when I drank uh, tonight, about 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, all this booze would start oozing out of my pores, and I smelled like a distillery. So I'd gotten this brilliant idea, or I thought it was brilliant, that if I bathed with Tide laundry soap, that would get all down in the pores and wash all this alcohol out, you know. And I damn near lost my skin, you know, and I, in there with the Tide laundry soap. Then I'd come out of the shower, and, be, and, and uh, I would take the murine and try to wash the... the, the uh, Road, the, the road maps out of my eyes. Then I would uh, take the uh, chlorophyll chewing gum, which had just come out. Big water that in my mouth and some mouthwash and some Sin Sin. Remember Sin Sin? And I popped some Sin Sin in. And then I put my tailor-made uniform on and, and I'm ready to go to the office and tell this big lie. I get to the door and I'm overcome with fear and I have to go back to my locker and take a big slug of Canadian Club which completely undid the process. I had to start all over again. Anyhow, eventually I made it to the office, and I went in and see my commander, and I gave him this big lie about what had happened to me. And I remember him looking at me very strangely, and he said, but you were here yesterday. Yeah. It wasn't long after that <laughs> that they called me in, and they said, listen, Peter, your, uh, your military service is interfering with your drinking. <laughs> and uh, we proposed to put an end to that. And uh, they, uh, I was on an indefinite enlistment, and they uh, allowed me to resign or else get kicked out. And off I went back to Detroit after spending almost 10 years in the Army. I got back to Detroit. I was there only a few days when I was at my mother's house, and the most astonishing event occurred. A very lovely young woman 
came to visit my mother. This young woman just seemed to be all the things I'd ever dreamed of. She was so wholesome and so so poised and so charming and and so gracious and all the things I ever I ever uh, dreamed of. She's not the kind of woman that you met at the Bucket of Blood bar where I used to hang out. And uh, I, I looked at her and I was immediately smitten. I fell in love with the idea of being in love. I thought I was in love, but I now know that I'd fallen in love with the idea of being in love. You see, I didn't love myself. And if you don't love yourself, you can't really love anyone else. But anyhow, she just embodied all the qualities that I, that I had ever visualized in another human being. And the young woman's name was Dawn. And now it's 37 years later, and she's still as lovely as she was then. Isn't that good news? And so immediately I embarked on this uh, whirlwind courtship. Uh, we were, you know, I was talking Martian. I was talking Martian. And uh, place dropping. You know, this was back at a time when, when only two kinds of people ever went abroad. Uh, one was very wealthy people, and the second was people who had been in the military. It just wasn't routine for, as it is now, for people to hop over to London for a few days or, or, or Rome or whatever. You know, nowadays someone disappears in your office for a few days and comes back and says they've been to Paris. You know, you don't give it a second thought. But in those days, this was a big deal. And so I'd been to all these places, and I would just drop, drop uh, names of places I'd been, you know, very, you know, trying to convey the image that I was a, a swashbuckling man of the world and a, and a globe trotter and a adventurer and all this good stuff, you know. And, and I'd been to all these places. The problem was when I was, when I was at these places, I was drunk. And uh, I've learned more about these places watching TV than I ever learned actually visiting them. So anyhow, but I was very impressive, very impressive. And uh, after five months, uh, she and I were married. We went to Toledo, as you told you this morning. And uh, my life has never been the same. Never been the same. We were married, and we had all these dreams that one day we'd have. We were, she had a little job. She was a secretary making $56 a week. And I had a job in a factory making $2 an hour. And we were going to save our money and to get a down payment on a home. And as soon as we got the down payment on the home, then she could go home and we'd start having babies and a little vine-covered uh, cottage with a picket fence around it, you know, and live happily ever after, right? Wrong. Because we were married about a month when she announced that she was pregnant. And let me tell you something, folks. It was a very difficult pregnancy for me because I... Ex- I experienced morning sickness every day. And uh, you know what causes morning sickness. And uh, at the end of the nine months, she said, Honey, it's time for me to go to the hospital. And I took her to the hospital, and the, the, and the doctor said, It's going to be a little while yet. And she said, Honey, go call the relatives. And I went down to the lobby of the hospital, and there was not a vacant telephone. And so I went down the street to a bar, to use the phone. And about four or five days later, I remembered that I left Dawn in the hospital. And I went back to, and she didn't throw me out. This is one of the low points of my entire life. One of the low points. And so we went home with that baby. Incidentally, that baby has 11 years of sobriety as a result of these steps. We went home and I uh, made a decision. I decided that I did have a problem, but I was going to handle the problem. And so I made a big show of going around pouring booze down the sink. And I got up in the middle of the night and fed the baby. And I changed diapers and washed diapers because I wanted to demonstrate to Don that I was a changed man. And I was a changed man for three weeks. 
In the meantime, I'd gone back to Wayne State University under the GI Bill, and one day I went down to the mailbox, and this was on, this was on the 19th of December, 1956, and I had looked in the mailbox, and there was a government check, my subsistence check from the government. And my first thought was, I should take this check and, and start paying off some bills. And my next thought was, it's almost Christmas, and I should take this money and give Dawn and the baby the biggest Christmas they've ever had. So I won't tell her about this check. And so I went downtown with the check, and it started raining, and I ducked into a bar. And three days later, on the 22nd of December, I see myself now coming home through the snowflakes with my pants wet, my pockets empty. I can hear the, the Christmas bells uh, tinkling. I can hear the Christmas carols. I can, I can see the Christmas lights flickering. And I was at the lowest point of my entire existence. And I got back to that little apartment where a very frightened young woman was with a three-week-old baby. And suddenly I became sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I remembered a place where I'd been six years earlier, where the people sat around and talked about being grateful, a place where people had all these cornball slogans, a place where all these people were old people. And I picked up that telephone and I called AA. And it seemed only a matter of minutes before there were two men on my doorstep. One of those men became my sponsor, and they brought me the good news that it didn't have to be this way. And I listened. And after we talked a while, uh, Carl said, let's go to a meeting tonight. And I said, you know, I'd like to go to a meeting tonight with you, but I've only got one pair of pants. And this pair of pants was standing up in the corner. And Carl said to me, if you want to be sober more than you want to be drunk, you climb in those bridges and you come with me. And I climbed into those smelly, wet bridges and they took me out on that cold night in December to an AA meeting in a very warm room. And we walked into that meeting and people came from every direction and they stuck out their hands and they opened up their arms and they said, welcome. They said, welcome. They said, here is your chance to make a new beginning. And they said, this is a homecoming for you because we are a part of your family. And they said, you can experience recovery one day at a time if you're willing to give yourself to this simple program. And my life has never been the same. Let me just say a couple of things very quickly. This morning, those of you who heard Dawn, heard her mention the hole in the soul. I believe that every one of us has a hole in our soul. And we're the kind of people, uniquely, who have deeper holes than anyone else. And some of these holes, some of us require the hole, we try to fill these holes with, with money or with sex or with power or with authority, or with, with drugs, or with alcohol, and nothing, nothing fills the hole in the soul except the grace of God. Nothing else, nothing less, nothing more. And the pathway I took to discovering the grace of God was through the 12 suggested steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. 200 words that spell recovery. 200 words that spell recovery. You see, and by giving myself to this simple program, I put myself on the road to recovery a day at a time. And a most astonishing thing happens when an individual gives himself or herself to this simple program. You see, the higher power God as you understand him. God, whether it's he or she or it. God takes that hole in our souls and shapes it and forms it and twists it and turns it and that hole becomes a channel. Becomes a channel. In the 11th step, 
chapter of the 12 and 12, Bill had the eminent good sense to quote the prayer of St. Francis. You know, that prayer is translated in two different ways. The way I first uh, encountered it as a kid was, God, make me an instrument of thy peace. And, you know, an instrument is sometimes something that's shiny, ostentatious, that attracts a lot of attention, something that's, that's complicated. But Bill chose to translate it, God, make me a channel of thy peace. And what is a channel? A channel is something that allows something else to flow through it. And so when God takes that hole in our souls and forms it into a channel, and I say, and you say, make me a channel of your peace and your love and your joy, then God sends this flood through us if we are spiritually fit to someone else. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news that the loving God of my understanding thinks so much of someone like you and me with our checkered past, with all the slime and filth that attached itself to my way of living? And God says, I don't care whether you're from Yale or from jail. I don't care whether you're from a park bench or Park Avenue, I can take your life and use it if you're willing to allow me to make your life a channel. You've ever seen a river and in the springtime when it's at high tide, when it's at flood? You can't see the channel because it's so full of whatever it's carrying. And that's what God is asking me to do in the, in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous to allow myself to be a channel, to forget myself, to give it away. And so that's the challenge I find. I mentioned uh, my father uh, earlier and his brutality, and I didn't see my father for 40 years. For 40 years I didn't see my father. And you know, my hatred of my father was so intense, was so intense that I could have killed that man because of the abuse that he heaped on us kids and on my mother. And as, I, as my uh, uh, sobriety and my recovery progressed, I knew that there was something missing, that, some, that there, were, uh, there was a need for some healing to take place that had not taken place. And so with the encouragement of my beloved Dawn, I searched out my father and found him living in Weymouth, Massachusetts. And you know, I remember as a little boy sitting in church looking up at my father, I remember when my father was 33 years old, and I was about eight, and I remember looking up at my father, and I remembered, and I remember thinking, Jesus was 33 years old. That's the way I looked at my father. And I sought that man out, and we called him up, and I said, uh, Daddy, I want to come and visit you. And he said, I don't want to see you. I don't want to see you. This after 40 years. And uh, uh, I was said, well, to myself, what the hell with that? I don't want to see you either. But Don encouraged me to, to give him another call. And I called him back and I said, listen, I'm going to come to Weymouth, Massachusetts tomorrow to see you. And we went to Weymouth, Massachusetts, and we had a reunion. You know, all those years of separation, I had these fantasies in my mind that one day my father, who had abused me so terribly, would come to me, and in my fantasy, he was always had tears in his eyes, and he'd get down on his knees and beg me for forgiveness. You know what? When I saw my father, none of that happened. He just blew it by. But that was all right, because the ninth step tells me that I need to set things right. And so I went in to see that old man in a forgiving fashion. And for the next year of his life, I maintained very close contact with him, and I, I sent him money, and I visited him I'd fly up to Boston and visit him, you know, and it was very beautiful. And finally, after about a year, he went into his terminal illness. And uh, I, uh, I have two brothers and a sister, and they, they have nothing to do with this man at all. And, he, and I remember as his days became shorter and shorter, I remember him in the Boston University Medical Center. 
lying in the bed, a little tiny man. He'd been so big and distinguished. Now he was just a little man with tubes running out of the, all of his openings in his body. And I looked at this man, and I could see he was dying. And I went in there in the middle of the night, and I said, Daddy, I love you. And that wasn't me. That was as a result of these steps. And I think he heard me because he squeezed my hand. And in a short time, God took him off this earth. And I remember the funeral. My two younger brothers, my sister came, and they were in such pain. So much unresolved conflict. Incidentally, all three of them need to be in these programs, and they're not. And they came to the funeral, and they were in such pain. But I was all right. I was all right as a result of these steps because I had done what my higher power directed me to do as a result of those steps. And I was able to say to him, farewell, and to say to him that I love you, and to say to him, I understand that your life wasn't easy, not to excuse him for his behavior, but to forgive him because I've learned as a result of these steps that forgiveness is a necessary ingredient in the process of recovery. When we close this meeting tonight, we're going to close it with the Lord's Prayer. And at one point we'll say, give us this day our daily bread. Now I used to think that that bread was wonder bread. But I discovered that that bread they're talking about is a spiritual bread. It may be the bread of sobriety and it may be the bread of recovery. And it may be the bread of courage, and it may be the bread of serenity, and the bread of, of wisdom, and the bread of forgiveness, and the bread of mercy, and the bread of justice. Whatever your bread is, the higher power will provide, including the bread of forgiveness. That's good news. We have a precious responsibility to carry this message. Willing way is carrying the message. You, as graduates of Willingway, are carrying the message because there are people out there who need to share in this bread. They say that the day that Bill Wilson sat down with Dr. Bob, it was one beggar telling another beggar where he found the bread. And that's the responsibility you and I have tonight, is to find ways to go out into the world in our own communities and tell others where we found this bread. Let me just tell you one little story, and I'm going to sit down. I've been here too long. You know, when, during the Depression, when I was a youngster, I lived in the North, and we were very poor, and there wasn't always enough to eat. And my parents would scrape together a few dollars and send us down to my father's old home in Mississippi. And uh, at least down on the farm... They had chickens running around, and you could eat. And so we'd go down to Mississippi in the summertime, and, and uh, one of the great joys of visiting Mississippi in the summertime was we could sit there with Grandma Catherine. And Grandma Catherine was a little black lady about that tall. She didn't even know how old she was. But she was alive when the Union Army came through, came through Mississippi and told her that she was free. And she, and, and I never tired of having Grandma Catherine tell the story about what it was to learn that she was free. And she would tell us this story, and then her face would become radiant as she would tell us this story. And then she would begin to sing an old spiritual. And one verse of this spiritual went, Just when I thought that all was lost, my dungeon shook and my chains fell off. Let me tell you something. These 12 suggested steps, properly understood and properly undertaken, will help you and me to shake loose from the bondage of self, will help us to break out of that self-centered fear and permit us to continue trudging the road of happy destiny.
Ain't that good news? Thank you.